a lot of people live in denial because they think that to be realistic is to be depressing. I'm Dr. Mike, host of Going There. It was the first song where I wrote about how I felt like my depression was killing me and I didn't want it. Going There breaks the stigma of mental health issues by having real honest conversations with your favorite musicians, including Alessia Cara, Lizzie Hale, Jewel, Jason Isbell, Gerard Way, Lauren Gray, Shamir, and Barty Strange. There was something there that was so raw where I was like, wow, I can't believe someone would say that. Let's go there on Going There with Dr. Mike, brought to you by Sound Mind Live and the Consequence Podcast Network every other Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome listeners to another episode of the story behind the song, the Consequence Podcast Network series, where I interview the iconic artists behind the most iconic songs of the past few decades. I'm your host, Peter Chadi, and each month I dive deep into conversations with your favorite musicians of all time to get insights into the creative journeys behind their most popular and lasting songs. I also ask each artist about one of their personal favorite deep cuts from their own catalog, and in the process, these living legends reveal frequently surprising, never-before-discussed details about these songs and their creative journeys, as well as candid reflections about their personal triumphs and challenges. In this episode, I speak with multi-platinum artist and cultural icon Rick Astley, whose 1987 dance song, Never Gonna Give You Up, shattered records back then and then sparked an internet phenomenon two decades later. The song hit number one in 25 countries in the 1980s and then rickrolled its way into all of our lives and hearts decades later. And now, voila, the video for the song has been viewed over 1.1 billion times, and Astley has sold over 40 million albums. And all of it began because the girlfriend of Never Gonna Give You Up songwriter just happened to be living in the same small town as young Astley and knew of his musical talents. And as they say, the rest is history. We also discuss Rick's pick, his very different soul song, Cry For Help, from his 1991 album, Free. Rick penned that song, which itself became a top 10 hit in both the U.S. and U.K. So take a listen as we dive into the story behind the song with music icon Rick Astley. We're no strangers to love. Rick, good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Rick, where, where are you today? I'm actually in Los Angeles at the moment. Uh, we got here a couple of days ago. Um, I've got some bits and bobs to do, and then I'm going on tour here um, on the mixtape tour with uh, New Kids on the Block. Yeah. Uh, on Vogue on Vogue and Salt and Pepper. So um, I'm a little bit blurry at the moment because I've only been here like 24 hours. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, that's why I came early as well, to be honest. I just wanted to be in good shape before we kick off. We start in May, so uh, I've got a few weeks yet, so that'd be great. Good for you. I was going to ask you about that tour. It sounds like a fun one. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it was very much out of the blue because I have toured in the States in the last, say, five or six years, just small small tours. Yeah. And obviously, I, I couldn't play in the arena on my own. I wouldn't have a chance of doing that. Um so it's kind of a big step up from, I mean, we play arenas in the UK, which is amazing and some in Europe, yeah. but I don't have, I just don't have that kind of thing going on in America. So it's kind of amazing to be invited by the guys to come and join their circus as I'm calling it. Um, and I think we are going to have a lot of fun. You know, I've listened, obviously I, I know, you know, I know those guys from the tracks and back in the day and massive yeah. hit records, they were huge in Europe. Um, uh, the girls obviously as well were massive. You know, if you mentioned salt and pepper on Vogue, everybody knows straight away what you're talking about and who you're talking about. So yeah, I think it's going to be a, a, a ram packed, uh, evening of hits to be honest. So, yeah. um, it's, yeah. kind of, it, it's kind of, I've done things similar, a little similar, but nothing like this exactly. If you know what I mean, I've done gigs, many gigs in the UK and certain parts of the world where. There's a bunch of artists kind of go around together and do that, not just a warm-up act and a headline. It's like an actual bunch of you. And I I enjoy it for lots of reasons. One reasons one of the reasons I particularly enjoy it is it's kind of comfortable to know you only have to play your hits. Do you do you enjoy doing that? Yeah, I do. I mean, it's slightly different in the UK. We've 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 had some records in the UK that have done pretty well in the last few years. New music, you know. Yeah. So 
I can play new music without everybody going to the bathroom. But obviously, obviously when you do a gig like the mixtape tour kind of the style of gig, it's not about that. It's about you, you, it's about you having that connection with an audience again, with songs from when we were perhaps all in our twenties or maybe even teens for certain people. And just, it's a bit of a trip down memory lane. Do you know what I mean? And that's, I think some people shy away from that and run away from it, but I don't know. I think I've come full circle. I think, I think I appreciate the songs and you know, the couple of hits I had way more now than I did when I was having them. Obviously great songs. Um, and the tour is going to be a lot of fun. There's no question. Let me ask you about that. How did, because that's a great lineup that, that will be a lot that's of a, fun. And so yeah, yeah. how, how did that come together? Um, I think just simply with a, with a phone call, well, obviously emails to start with and then a phone call. Um, I've now chatted with Donnie a little bit, obviously Donnie Wahlberg from new kids and, and about a couple of different things. And, and I, I guess I'm not sure why they asked me or chose me kind of thing. I don't really know why, to be honest, but, uh, like I say, I, I took it, I took it as kind of being flattering really, and kind of what an amazing way to get to see, we're doing 57 gigs. I mean, that's. For me, that's pretty crazy. You know, that's in a three lot months, of gigs. In yeah, three yeah, months. we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna hammer it. You know, and that's a lot of gigs. And like I say, if I come to America to do my own small tour, um, I love it. But we play in small venues, you know, and that's. And also, I think that I think every artist should do that every now and again. But the truth of it is, we all want to play the we all we all want to play the Enorma Dome. Who doesn't want to play the Enorma Dome? Um, <laughs> I, so, I like that. Yeah, so it's kind of you know. There is a different feeling when you're doing a smaller gig. There's no doubt about it. And we did a tour in the UK in um, October into November. We're really lucky to get the gigs done, obviously, because of COVID back then. It was a different story even just months ago. Um, and, you know, we did we did pretty big gigs because I can do that in the UK. But like I say, in different parts of the world, you have to, you just got to just man up to it, really, and just sort of say, that's who my audience is and that's how big it is. So when you get a chance to do this, it was kind of like, yeah, I'm in, let's do it. You know, um, it's, I, I mean, I remember coming to America the first couple of times and just thinking what the hell is going on? Because we all kind of love the same music on a worldwide basis. Of course we do, but certain territories, certain countries are just different. And a lot of my favorite artists, um, you know, that kind of without them knowing it taught me to sing and taught me what real music is and all the rest of it came from America. Uh, especially a lot of my favorite singers going back to like old school R&B days of Bill Withers and Al Green and people like that and through Luther Vandross and lots of different people. Um, but I think coming to America was kind of like you're playing with the big boys. I, mm -hmm. I think that's just, I, I remember going back and doing shows in the UK. Um, we have a really big show there called um, Saturday night or Sunday night, depending on when they're doing it at the Palladium. Yeah. And it's like, it's held in at the Palladium Theatre in London. And they have some really big acts there from America and everywhere. I remember when I went back there the first time after having a couple of hits in America and the host of the show, it almost brought a tear to my eye, to be honest, because he was really amazing and kind of built me up and everything and said, look, this kid is from a little town in the North. Cause he's from a little town in the North, yeah, you see, yeah. a big town in the North. And he was kind of saying, this kid's just had two number ones in America, ladies and gentlemen, Rick Astley, boom. And I remember just sort of thinking, oh my God, it, it sunk in a bit more going home than it did coming here. It frightened me coming to America, to be honest. It actually frightened me. And looking around at, at somebody like New Kids on the Block, for instance, who were massive, um, was kind of, it was almost a bit daunting, I think, because also I was on my own. I had a, a great guy who traveled me with me management-wise and stuff like that, but I was on my own. And it, yeah. it's, it's slightly, I think it's harder, if I'm honest, to do it on your own, because you do all the interviews, you do all the everything. You know what I mean? It's, it's, I kind of envied people who were in, a, a, you know, a band, boy band, girl group, whatever you want to call it, you know, just having friends around you to, to, to do it, you know? So. Absolutely. Look, look, you were only 21 years old at the time when your first album came out. Sure. Absolutely. So you're, you're, you're a kid and here you are thrust into all of that and having to figure Sure. You had advisors, but still you're figuring it all out on your own. And I, it is a very different thing than being in a group. Yeah, no, it totally is. And I, I think even just when you're not on form for whatever reason that might be, maybe you've had a couple of beers the night before, or, or you're just not, you know, you're just not feeling it that morning. It's just like, here we go again. And, and you're just not in the zone. 
Yeah. Um, but you've got to do the interviews and you've got to smile at everybody and you've got to do that whole thing. It's like, at least if you've got a couple of friends around you to go, oh, I'll take this this morning. You get on the couch. You know what I mean? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll try to make this interview fun. Okay. <laughs> I, I promise. Well, I'll, listen, try, I'll try to keep it fun. Yeah. When I don't do interviews the same way I did then, I did interviews <laughs> just all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas yeah. now, now I, I kind of treat it like unpaid therapy a little bit sometimes, you know, so. <laughs> Good. We yeah. want, we want it all to come <laughs> out. Okay. So. Oh, it's coming, baby. It's coming. <laughs> I, I, I like it. I like it. Okay. So it's the story behind the song podcast. And so as we do every month, we dig in deep into two different songs. One of your most iconic songs. And of course we know that's going to be never going to give you up. And then I always open it up to the artist to choose whichever, whichever song they want to be the second song that we discuss. It could be anything yeah. from your discography. And you chose the, the song cry for help yeah. 1991 from your yeah. free album. So we'll yeah. talk about that as well. That too was a big hit. It was a top 10 hit in both the U S and the UK. Yeah. Um, but let me go through a couple stats. I got to, you know, about sure. you. So <laughs> You've sold over 40 million albums worldwide yeah. since, since 1987. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You're best known for never going to give you up and dance, but you are obviously deep, deeply involved in soul and multiple genres. Uh, and as I mentioned, cry for help is a soul song. It's not a dance song. So it's a very different song. Mm -hmm. You were voted the best act ever by internet users at the 2008 MTV Europe music awards. We'll get into that late. So, yeah, yeah, we'll get into it. Of course <laughs> we'll get into it, but, but these are, look, it's all great stuff. You have 2.1 million TikTok followers. So you're clearly bringing some joy to the world that is desperately in need of it, which is great. Um, one of your Reddit posts I'm told from 2020 was the most upvoted Reddit of any kind of post in all of 2020, which yeah. is per and so I need to find out what that post was all about. Matt. And but beyond all that in the music, you're also a philanthropist. You mentioned that there were two concerts at the end of last year, and you organized two free concerts to benefit NHS, which is the National Health Care for the UK, yeah. correct? Yeah, yeah. It's all the guys and girls who, who work in, in healthcare in the UK, basically. Yeah. And we have a very we have a different system to you, I think. I think our healthcare, the NHS, you know, has been, I think, I think it's one of the things most British people are proud of. We forget about them until we need them, unfortunately. Yeah. That's just the way the world works. You know, yeah. we take things for granted. We all do. But when you need them, oh my word, you know, and it's like, um, I think like the world was doing, everybody wanted to say thank you to those guys and girls who were doing all of that, you know, in terms of because. I think the thing is when you probably take on a job like healthcare, you don't, for most people, that's not life and death. And when you're confronted with something like COVID, like as we were for two years and still are, um, that can be life and death for the people trying to save your life. You know what I mean? And for their families and all the rest of it. And I don't know, my wife and I, my wife manages me and we work together all the time. We travel together all the time. And we were housebound like everyone else. Yeah. And just thinking we're in a, we're in an upside down world at the moment. And there's, there's, we felt really, uh, unable to kind of do anything other than go out. And we used to clap the NHS, like the rest of the country did on a Thursday night and bang pots and pans in the street, just to say, thank you. And say, we're still, you know, saying thank you. And, um, we both just felt that it was ridiculous. It was like, surely we can do other, but, but putting a gig on, it's like the worst thing you can do in COVID that is just not possible. So we kind of said, well, maybe if we announce the gigs. So if you're part of the NHS, you can apply for gigs, you know, and take a friend or a partner or what have you. Um, and it's like a flag in the ground saying, as soon as we are gigging, you guys are out first. Do you know what I mean? And um, I think we both felt really good about doing that. I mean, other, lots of other artists have done it, obviously. and um, But it felt like we were doing something. So, yeah, so when we finally managed to get back out on tour, um, we did one at Wembley Arena. Um, we did one in, in the arena in Manchester, which is kind of roughly where I'm from. So that felt really great to do that there. Um, but it was just, there were quite emotional gigs, to be honest. I mean, uh, yeah, I definitely had tears a few times that night because you're just looking at people who've gone that extra mile, you know, and yeah. I don't know, really just, I think I've always appreciated how lucky I've been throughout my life, but I think this last couple of years, it's really kind of nailed on a little bit more, just how lucky I've been. And, and I'm at the moment, even, you know, so. 
Good for you. Good for you for doing that and taking the time and, and acknowledging all those people and putting on those gigs. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, so that was fascinating to me. And that was you know something I want to highlight because it, how important that is, but also my personal favorite, you're a pub owner. Uh, yeah, kind of. Yeah. That is, <laughs> that is an adventure and a half. Yeah. That's um, so bad. So my wife is Danish and, um, there's a beer company in Denmark or from Denmark. Uh, called Mikkola and um, the, the head of that company is called Mikkel and he got in touch because he wanted to make a beer for me he's made beer for a couple of other artists as well and at first I sort of thought who is this dude what are you talking about make a beer for me and then you know so anyway we got chatting on FaceTime and it was a bit weird because we I know nothing about brewing beer I like beer believe me I like beer but I don't know anything about making this stuff so we went through a bit of a process about, he just kept sending loads of beers for me and a few friends to taste. And we had like, it was kind of strange. It was like having a wine tasting, but with beer and like 25 different beers. And we just sort of narrowed it down to a bunch that I liked. And I told him all the ones that I really liked. And from that, he kind of said, well, and I also said, look, please don't make me something strange. Please make it really drinkable so that yeah. we've got friends around and what have you that, you know. Um, so yeah, so we, we've made three, well, they've made three beers for me. And then in that process of doing that, yeah. um, they wanted to open a bar in London. So they opened the very first one, which is an actual, like an old school little pub basically, but obviously done in their design and their quality level. Cause the quality level is amazing. They've got something like 50, 60 or more bars around the world. You know, we've, we've been to different bars of theirs in, in Tokyo, even, and what have you in California, different places, they're everywhere. Um, and obviously in Denmark and then. The opportunity came around to get actually involved in starting a brew pub where we actually brew the beer. And that is super exciting because it just feels a bit more real that you're, you're making the beer on site, pumping it up and drinking it. It's not oh, yeah. being transported across a thousand miles or more or what have you. It's fresh. It goes in there. And Mark, who's like the head brewer at, at our little place, um, you know, he's like, well, they all are. They're so kind of into it. And so it, it, it reminds me, to be honest, of being around musicians and crew who are like so into a certain pocket and certain, a certain thing that's so important, you know, about an instrument or, or, a, you know, a piece of equipment or what have you. It's geeky is what it is. They're, they're geeky. They're like beer geeks. Well, it's at it the end of reminds the... me. Yeah, it's, it's, it's another form of art, artistry, right? It's yeah, like yeah, cook, it, cooking it, or, or yeah. being, uh, or having a vineyard or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. and it's well, fun. And it's fun. Well, it's a different world, and and that's one of the things I like about it is that it's something we can be involved in at, at some distance. Obviously, I'm not in there making the beers. I have helped make one, um, but I'm not in there brewing because, um, like I said, I don't know, don't know anything about it. But it's been a bit of an adventure, to be honest, and it's been nice to sort of have a, fo a foot in a world that you don't know anything about. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's why, to be honest, that's why I think a lot of people do have a guitar at home. Even if they're not pro players, it's just nice to have that foot in that world and get a bit of a jam going on with a couple of friends saying, this isn't going to be my career, but I it's great. You know what I mean? So, Oh, yeah, so, yeah. absolutely. It's fun stuff. Okay, so now we're going to start getting into uh, the two songs a little bit, and sure. I'll give you some statistics, everybody out there, about Never Gonna Give You Up. Again, we're talking about two different songs. So Never Gonna Give You Up was your debut single in 1987. It was number one in 25 countries, which is incredible. It won the best British single at the 1988 Brit Awards. Um, it, it then blew up again in 2007 when it became an international phenomenon. And of course, we're going to talk about Rick Rolling. Mm -hmm. and, and it reached just, I just checked. It's now over 1.1 billion views. You're your yeah, video on youtube it's mad it really is mad i mean that song has been um unbelievably good to me and i wouldn't i could have never have guessed that when we recorded it obviously i didn't write the thing i wish i had um but yeah. Yeah. it was um i kind of felt it was a great tune with the first time i heard it and i actually going back to the very beginning of how that song came about uh, Stock Aitken Waterman and three producers who were back in the day in the 80s were massive. And I joined their little production company just before they became massive. Yeah. So then as they started to have big hit records, like number one records, like one a month almost, like with Dead or Alive, You Spin Me Round and big records like that, 
um, I got put on the back burner because I was signed to them to make a record, but people were throwing money at them from big record labels. So I ended up making coffee for Bananarama and getting the tea and the sandwiches for Dead or Alive, playing table tennis with them. Both um, great, both great, great bands. Yeah, yeah, some great hits, you know. Um, and then this guy turned up, who a guy called Ian Kernow, and he was going to come and be like a programmer to get tracks going for the other three producers. So I helped Ian take a thing called a Fairlight, which was the early days of computer programming and, and computer technology in studios. People still worked on tape machines, but this was like to program sounds and stuff. So I helped him take it out of the boxes. And this thing, by the way, was worth like a row of houses in the little town I'm from. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I sat there getting him coffee and sandwiches while he programmed Never Gonna Give You Up. So Mike Stock, one of the producers, had been down into his like bunker sort of room and um, put the chords in, told him the melody, gave him a bit of a brief and a tempo and said, look, I want it like this. And um, so I sat there while that song was was given birth to, if you like, um, which I don't think most artists who come from a production team like that really experience that very often. Normally, they've written the song, they've got it up as a track, you can hear it as a track, you can sing on it and feel it works and everything. I was literally sat there um, and while every note was put into it. And so... It was quite an unusual experience in that respect, in terms of that kind of pop end of you turn in and sing, turn up and sing other people's songs. Do you know what I mean? That's normally yeah. like the way it's done. But I was kind of part of the furniture in that building. It was kind of strange. I got to do my demos at night, sometimes with an engineer who'd, who'd actually engineered and mixed a number one record for somebody a month ago. And here he was doing my demos and explaining how a DX7 keyboard works too easy. Like <laughs> yeah. And it was like, yeah. so, so it was, it was pretty amazing. And, um, yeah, I would have never dreamt, though, even then, that obviously that, you know, I knew it had legs, that song, but I couldn't have predicted anything that came, that did come. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to go deeper into that, but how did you get into the studio in the first place? Because I want you to take us through a, a journey of how, of your starting, you know, a brief journey guided sure. tour from you about yeah. you as a young kid and then getting yeah. into the music world and then yeah. finding yourself in the seat in that chair of the studio sure. but we're going to take well, a quick rick we're going to take a quick break welcome back i am with rick astley and we are just getting into a little bit more deeper into never going to give you up but first rick as i was saying i want to get a guided tour of you and how sure. you broke into the business so start yep. wherever you'd like to start as a young okay. lad okay well as a young lad um i was always picked to be in school plays because i could sing a bit I, I was in the school uh choir the church choir um, which was very, you know, Church of England, very straight sort of choir thing. There was nothing gospel about it. There was nothing funky about it at all. It was, you know, um, but I still think it kind of tickled something in me to realize that human voices together is amazing. It's, it's, there's no, um, conduit. There's no, there's no, there's nothing between you and the sound you make. You make that sound with your body, basically, obviously. There's no instrument to have to play. And I still respond to that, I think. Whenever I hear a choir, I think it just blows me away. Um, so, and then when I turned, what, 14, 15, I stumbled almost upon a drum kit in our high school at lunchtime. And someone had been playing it and what have you thought, wow, I didn't even know we had a drum kit. And I went in there and I had a bit of a thrash around. And I couldn't play drums or anything, but I thrashed around. And I, had, I certainly had some kind of rhythm. And I kind of just kept going back to that room. And I think one day I'd never came out of it, actually. I don't know whether I went to my lessons even. I can't remember. But so I really, really wanted to play drums at that point. It, it, something just clicked with me, I think. So I managed to get hold of a little drum kit. I swapped a motorbike leather jacket for it. And uh, it was a pretty crappy drum kit, but, you know. And, and then a couple of friends at school, we kind of got a little band together. And we, we went in for a battle of the bands at our high school. And we were not the cool kids, no way. There was a band of guys and they were the cool kids, you know, captain of the soccer team, good looking guys. They were just the cool kids, full stop. Rick, you had a leather jacket that you traded away. So you were a cool yeah, kid, but, come on. Well, my, um, ish. My, my two brothers had motorbikes, you see, so and they're older <laughs> than me and it was just part of the family thing to, you know. Anyway, um, and we blew the other bands away. We were just way better than them. Um, I hope you don't mind me saying that after all these years, but we were. 
we did a couple of police songs, or at least I remember playing So Lonely. And I sang So Lonely from the drums. And that's a pig. To try that's, to play. that's hard to do. I mean, that's Stuart Colton was one of my all-time and still is one of my all-time favorite players. Really distinctive player and great chops and just, just you know, just great. Um, and also, I think the police were, were an amazing band because obviously Sting wrote some and still writes some incredible, amazing songs. But there were only three of them. But they made a huge sound and they made a sound really like no one else did, really, I think. Um, but Stuart Coffin was a massive part of that, I think, you know. Um, anyway. Well, completely agree. Great drummer. Yeah. And, um, and obviously I was kind of listening to records partly just to listen to the drums and what they were doing and how they were doing it and stuff. So they were a perfect opportunity to, you know, play along with or try to. So, yeah, so we murdered So Lonely um, and I sang that. Um, and then Jeff, the bass player, we did, uh, was, uh, let me ask you, Rick, I yeah. want to ask you about that. Okay. So you sang in a choir, were you comfortable immediately with being the front man singing? No. Well, I wasn't the front man because I was behind the drums. You were behind the drums. Yeah. So, so I was yeah. like a good 20 feet away from whoever might be watching or listening. And, yeah. uh, and that felt great. And, um, I kind of liked being there from honest. And, and anyway, so I was in that band, we were called give way and, um, I was in that band for a little while and and then as we kind of left high school i joined another band um and they were already doing lots of covers like um kind of beatles stuff and like sort of rock and roll kind of stuff and it was just fun to be in and play and they already had some gigs going and stuff at like what we used to call working men's clubs and we were kids you know i don't think any of us were 18 at this point um but, but and we used to practice all the time um but I kind of was just getting the feeling that like, this is never going to go anywhere. We're never going to leave our little town. All right. We might go over the hill to the next little town, but we're never going to, this is not going to do it. You know? So I borrowed a guitar and I got one of the guys to teach me a couple of chords. And I used to just sit at home trying to write something. And I came into rehearsals one day and said, I've written a song and I just sang it to them. And they all said, well, you better sing it then. So I sort of became the singer of a couple of songs in that band but also playing drums. And then eventually that just became ridiculous. So we bought a little drum machine, which I still have today, actually. Um, and we used to kind of use the drum machine and I'd come out from behind the kit and sing a couple of songs to that. And um, I think Battle of the Bands back then was like a big deal. It was a big thing. There were a lot of, you know, a lot of thing competitions you could enter. So we did a couple of those, one of which we failed miserably, um, but we learned a lot from the bands that got through. So we actually won the next one that we went in for because we just kind of watched all the bands that did quite well, right. what they did and how they did it from clothes to dance moves to everything. And by that time I was writing the songs and I was the lead singer and we, we had another drummer. And, um, and then in that sort of period, I got this guy, Pete Waterman from this production team. It was just a bizarre set of coincidences that he had a girlfriend in the little town I'm from. And the guys who were kind of managing us at the time who managed some kind of TV people, they managed some bands, but nobody that was in a famous band particularly, you know, not like a, you know, um, they knew him and got him to come and see us and a few other bands do a showcase. And he immediately liked my voice and said, I want the kid. I'm not interested in the band kind of thing. And like I didn't that. really take, yeah. And I didn't really take to that. And I was, I didn't really want to do it, but as time went on, um, over, you know, I don't know, six months or whatever. Yeah. Um, he was still really interested. So I went down to London to see him and I just thought, oh, what the hell, you know, we'll probably make a single. I'll get to stay in London for a week. Whatever. Let's just see what happens. It'll, it'll be, you know, that'll be exciting. Anyway, I went to their studio. It was a real studio. You know, I just thought oh, we'll give it a shot, you know? So I signed a little deal, a tiny little deal with their production company. And then in the next four or five months, they became the biggest producers in Britain and then Europe and then on and on with certain songs that, you know, traveled everywhere, you know, it's so. pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing how uh, one moment changes the course of all these lives. You yeah. just had, he happened his, you said his sister. No, no, he had a girlfriend. Okay. His girl, and the his, but even, yeah. even that's wacky because he was friends with a guy who was a, like, he was a DJ at a record store. And he used to import a lot of American soul music and whatever. We all knew he was. And we went to yeah. his nights when he played music and we loved it. And he was friends with him, bizarrely, from somewhat, you know. 
And the girl, the woman who he, who he had a relationship with had a hairdresser's above this. So it's all this like, sort of like, what? You know what I mean? It's like, he's coming to see the girlfriend because he knows the guy with the records. Yeah. So he'll come and see four bands play, one of which he signs, one of which they write never going to give you up for. Boom. It's just weird. You know? Yeah. That's, that's it. Yeah. For, every, for everybody you out there watching and listening, that's how life works. Put yourself out there, inject yourself out into the, into the stream of it all. Don't just stay heads down inside your house. And that's how things happen. Right. It is, but I mean, but but the weird thing is, just look at what we're doing right now. You know, yeah. the, the internet has changed a lot of that. I'm listening. Yeah. Let's not get into the internet just yet. But I mean, that it really has changed. You know, as yeah. a band or as a musician, there was absolutely no other way than going to the local pubs, going to the local bars, coffee shops, whatever, and playing. And now, that still holds up and still has massive value. And is at the end of the day, you've got to be able to do some of that. I think to have a certain kind of relationship with your fans and all the rest of it and, and, and just be a performer. Yeah. But the world's completely different in terms of reaching people, you know, and people have discovered more probably on TikTok and what have you than they are in a bar these days, you know? So it's crazy. yeah, no, there's no question. Okay. So when you were, then that's what got you into the chair, into the studio mm. and the song was being written essentially in front of you before your eyes. Right. Yeah. So, did you, um, was there an immediate fit? Like you felt like, uh, yes, I felt very comfortable with this song and. Yeah, I did because the guy that I, I was just mentioning, this guy, Pete Waterman. Yeah. He is not an idiot at all. He is, he's probably one of the shrewdest people I've ever met in my life. I didn't perhaps realize that at the time, but as, as the years went on and after 150 hits and guts and whatever else. And the business deals that he must have done, because I mean, man, has that guy made some money. Um, not that it's about money, but obviously it's it's one way to, whether we like it or not, it's one way to judge somebody's success. You know what I mean? If they can go and buy their own railway, which is what he's done. I'm not talking about model, I'm talking yeah. about a railway, right? Yeah. That's another story altogether. Yeah, so, that's some success. Yeah. And um, he absolutely... Um, he knew the music that I liked. I mentioned some of the singers before that, that taught me to sing and, and, you know, taught a lot of people to sing. I think we all copied the greats. That's how we learned to sing. You know what I mean? I know people strive to have their own sound and eventually you might find your own way of doing it, but you, you learn from everyone else. And he knew that, you know, people like Luther Vandross, Alexander O'Neill, James Ingram, all, 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 all the black American classic R&B singers of, of that period and the, and obviously before that as well, Al Green, like I say, who's to this day is still one of the favorite gigs I've ever been to in, in my life to see Al Green. I was just like, I've kind of walked, there's a couple of people I've seen where I walked out of the building. It wasn't a building actually, it was at the Greek theater in LA, where I walked out of there just going, right, may as well just stop there then because it ain't yeah, getting any yeah. better than that. Yeah. Don't get any better than that. Yeah. Um, well, it got pretty so good. It, it got pretty good for you. So let's, let, yeah, yeah, listen. I, I, so, so, so then, okay. So <laughs> I'm wandering. Go on. No, 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 no. You're not wandering. It's great. It's great to kind of get the like the real story about what was going through your head also at mm. the time. But so you were naturally drawn to soul. This was a very different kind of sound than that. Um, and you brought your own sense sensibility to it when you were doing it. Did you feel like that? Did you have a feeling in like in your, your soul that this thing was special? Did um, I think, I think I recognized as almost everybody did the first time they heard it, that that's a hit record. Whether me singing the record, I don't know. You know what I mean? Cause it's hard sometimes to, that has got a lot easier over the years, I think, but I think it's hard when you're 21 to go, yeah, my voice on that sounds like a hit record. Yeah. Cause all I can hear is me singing. Right. I'm going, what is going on? I'm on this disc. It's like, it's happened. I'm on a record. Do you know what I mean? That is a yeah. really weird thing to get your head around. Um, but I definitely knew the song was, well, say knew. I had a really good feeling it was a hit because it just sounded like one straight yeah. out of the box. It just sounded like a hit. Um, and a lot of the things that are in that song, which I loved, like the string arrangement thing and the whole, just the groove of it was really great. I mean, they kind of pinched the bass line from Colonel Abraham's, which is one of my favorite records at the time. Um, th there were just a lot of things that they did in that record. And like I say, they knew they were doing it. They, they, I think you have to, any of the production teams that have been massive throughout the years, even going back to Motown, 
have got to give the artists they're writing for something that they can feel they can connect to and sing sure. or else they're never going to do it. You'll stick them on TV or in front of an audience and they're just going to look like a piece of wood, just, just, you know, regurgitating whatever you've got to feel, you've got to feel in the middle of your own song. Do you know what I mean? Or at the song they've written for you. And I definitely felt that. And the, and the whole arrangement of the track and everything, I really loved. I kind of felt it was like, I'm still proud of that song today. And I didn't even write it or produce it or anything. You know, I just sang on the goddamn thing. But I mean, I just think it's, it's just, a, I just think it's a great tune. It's as simple as that, you know. So you're 21 years old. Yeah. And this thing, this song gets released and immediately becomes a smash. Yeah. And your world just completely changes. How does a 21 year old kid like Rick Astley deal with that? Um, in lots of ways, I don't think I did. I think I just, I think I just got on with it and I don't think I really, um, I don't think I was that comfortable really, if I'm honest, I was comfortable singing and I was comfortable with that song. Don't get me wrong, but I wasn't really comfortable with the concept and the notion of what becoming a pop star, which is what I became is um, uh, and really is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, when I used to look at Simon Le Bon on the front of a yacht in, in the Caribbean, I thought, yeah, that looks about right. Sounds about right. And looks about right. He looks like he's carrying that off really well. And I looked at myself in videos and just thought that looks like a scared kid who doesn't know what he's doing and wishes he was doing it with three or four other people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when, you know, people have talked about the, me, it, if you can call it dancing in the video for never going to give you up, that's just pure fear. That is just pure fear because there's 15, 25 people in a camera crew looking at you going, go on kid, off you go. Well, that, that I was going to ask you about what kind of direction was given to you. Pretty much. I'd say, I mean, listen, the, the guy, Simon West, his name is, he's gone on to be a really big Hollywood film director. Um, he may remember it differently, but I, I don't remember it differently as I just turned up with a bag of clothes. They're all my clothes. Um, and said, what are we doing? He said, well, you're going to be in front of a camera shuffling around pretending to sing that song because that's the other weird thing about making video. I've never made a video before. I yeah. never really got, got in a room with my friends and, you know, borrowed a video camera. Cause in those days who had a video camera, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I said, let's, let's, let's film ourselves pretending to sing. I'd never pretended to, you know, I probably, I probably had pretended to sing a couple of times while I mine. Cause I'd probably been on a few TV shows before that video. I must've been actually top of the pops and things, but even that's weird. They don't, they don't put you in a room with like a teacher and say, look, this is how you mine. You, you, and, and you might think that sounds ridiculous, but you try doing it in front of 12 million people watching you at home, knowing they're yeah. watching you. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. uh, did I get that right? Did it, did it, uh, bleh, bleh, you know, it's like, yeah. why can't we just sing the thing? That's what I'm supposed to do is sing, isn't it? But anyway, making videos is, is a different animal altogether. And, and, know, na and now that video, 1.1 billion times. Yeah, Can yeah, you even well, imagine? Yeah. Can you imagine you brought your own clothes to that session? Nobody gave you any direction. You, you said that they basically said shuffle around 1.1 yeah. billion times. Yeah. But I also think that's because that's, so that tells me there must be something about it that feels innocent. I'm going to use good words to describe this innocent, charming, um, and I'll also throw cheesy in there for sure. Um, but in a way that's kind of heartwarming, it's kind of like, that's just a young kid singing his first record in a video. And there it is. It's oh, not completely, it, it's, it, it's kind of the opposite. If you like to the Duran Duran thing. Yeah, you know I mean? absolutely. I, by the way, I loved Duran Duran big yeah. time. Um, I think they're so underrated as songwriters. It's unbelievable. Some of the songs they've written, but anyway. No, they're great, but we're talking about you. Yeah, that's about the end of the podcast. That's what I'm, I'm going to throw, but I'm going to throw two more words. Fun, definitely mm -hmm. fun mm -hmm. and, and earnest. And there's yeah. a, and those are, um, I think everybody likes fun, but earnest. I just had, uh, it's, it's interesting very different kind of music. But my last episode, it was Alex Ebert from Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. And right. a great, great band, great band. Right. And Alex before was a rap singer and kind of an angry rap singer. Mm -hmm. And then he went through some things that he talked about and he came out the other end of just yeah. like appreciating an earnestness. And that's what came through on that album. And that was an amazing album that came out. So yeah. I think that there is this kind of like, that is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. um, 
and 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 before we take the next break, I got to get into the phenomenon that that song was, of course, because it blew up again in 2007 with the whole phenomenon that everybody knows of, of Rick rolling. And, yeah. and so when that first happened and you learned that this was happening, what was your, how did you feel about that? Um, confused. I think is the, is the real truth to it. A friend of mine who lives in LA, um, uh, We've known each other since we were in our early twenties. Um, he's a producer and a writer and stuff. Um, he rickrolled me. I was on holiday in Italy and he rickrolled me and I'm like, uh, okay, whatever. And then he did it again. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, and then eventually we actually got on the phone with each other. Cause it was like, I, I don't actually know what you're doing. What, why, what are you doing? And he said, so you don't know anything about this. And I said, nope. And he kind of tried to explain it and. I think the weird thing is for us now, if you want to see anything that's ever been filmed, it'll be up there somewhere. Whereas back then, even in 2007, YouTube was still early days. The idea of sending somebody a video link in an email, of course, people were doing it, but it wasn't something it, it I mean, now you, everybody just films everything, puts it on whatever social media sends it to friends, sends it to multiple friends at the same time, which can then edit it, change it, reverse it, do whatever, send it back within seconds and say, but you know, we, it was a, to even then, even that short distance away, 2007, which is, you know, for certain people perhaps listening to this is a long time ago, but you know, for me, it ain't. Um, it's like, it's just mad. And so I just didn't get it at all. And our daughter at the time would have been about 15, 16 and when this thing came around about the MTV awards, putting me in the cat category of best act ever or whatever it was, I was like, what the heck, what are they doing? Why are they even, you know, and she kind of sat me down and said, did you realize all of this Rickroll thing and, and this, it's got nothing to do with you. And I'm like, what do you mean? And I'm looking at my daughter thinking, okay, this is, this is where you're being my 15, 16 year old daughter now. Um, and you're going to make me feel like an old man, um, which she <laughs> kind of did, but that was okay. Um, and she just looked at it with the perspective she had on it, which was that it, it, it is obviously you in the video, but it could have been anybody's video. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if you're even alive. It doesn't matter whether you're interested. It doesn't matter whether you take part, whether you don't, whether you, it just, nothing really matters. It just lives over here. And so. I kind of thought, okay, well, I can, I can kind of get that then. I can understand that. It's just a thing. And you have to, you've got to embrace a lot of things that come your way in life, I think. But you also have to do it sometimes with a, with a, maybe one eye on the reality of it, I think. And I have embraced it a couple of times and I'll be frank about it. It's definitely boosted my career, my, you know, bank account, my this, that, and the other one way or another. Of course it has, because. 1.1 billion, you know, plays on YouTube and various other things. It all filters in one way or another in terms of keeping that song alive and all the rest of it, and therefore my career. Um, and I have done a, you know, a couple of things with commercials and different things for it. Cause I thought they were funny and I thought, you know, and all the rest of it. And because they paid me, of course. Yeah. But essentially because they just keep, it's like promotion for the song. And what I've realized a little bit is I'm not embarrassed of the song. When we sing the song live, it feels really good. It feels good to see an audience go, yeah, I remember that's why I came. He sung it. I can go home now. That feels kind of nice. If you know what I mean, uh, wow. obviously, hopefully they come for a few other songs, but I know I can see it in their eyes. It's like, I've had the moment. That's the first time I saw him. First time I ever heard of him. That's that song. And I've learned to embrace that. I think more than I have anything else, if you know what I mean about, about it. Um, so I just see it as a bonus. And I can also truly understand why some artists would be horrified if that happened to them in the song that they, you know, lost blood to create or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But for me, for me, it's, it's a pop song that's been good to me, but, but that's kind of about it really, you know, it's, well, that's what it is. Look, um, uh, I, I can imagine at the time it's complete confusion when something yeah, yeah. like something like that happens. But you had one of the most iconic songs of the 1980s that lives on to this day and delights mm. people. That mm. so that that alone is a wonderful legacy. You know that's oh. an amazing legacy. And yeah. so 
yeah, what you and, and the you know the Rick Rolling, the video clip. There, there's a, there's a, those qualities that you had mentioned about just the way you were dancing and singing the song that resonated because if it were just a, um, if it were just the way your daughter said it, then it would have come and went, but it didn't just come and go like this continues on. So there's something, there's something beyond your humble way of describing it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess sometimes there's just a fairy in the studio who sprinkles dust on a track. And for whatever reason, that track gets allowed to be part of the wallpaper for the rest of its life. And well, the rest of the rest of whatever, you know, I mean, it just, and there are certain songs that are, they're undefinable as to why that one got through and the others didn't because on paper, not, it, you can't, there's no way for a, for a statistician to go through a record or a song and go, well, this is the reason because if a producer could do that, they'd do it every week. You know what I mean? It's still that thing of trial and error and doing it because it makes you feel good and hoping it's going to do that with other people because, you know, I know there's been some amazing production teams throughout, you know, modern music who have consistently hit, you know, the highs with different tracks they've made, but they do sort of fade away eventually because that's just the way it is. And, and, and even if you said, you know, the greatest people that have ever lived who've composed what we call music, modern music, you know, I mean, the last 70 years or what have you. They've all got a purple patch. They've all got a patch that is just like, that is incredible. And that patch might be two years, might be 20 years, but it isn't usually forever because there's just something. The fairy left the building, basically. And it's very hard to, it's very hard to work out what that is, I think. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So we're going to take Rick. We're going to take another quick break. Sure. And then we will be back, everybody, with Rick Astley and the story behind the song. We're going to dig into your second song. But then I want to talk about some of the other things that you're working on and are in your future. All right. We are back with Rick Astley. And now, Rick, thanks for the guided tour of Never Going to Give You Up. And um, now we're going to get into your second song. This is a song you wrote called Cry for Help from the album uh, Free from 1991. And this album and that song is very different than never going to give you up and so there is a the album is called free so first i wanted to ask you about that it's a very different album the song itself you wrote that song was there a reason and i think there was at least in my mind reading the story Mm. there may be a reason why you called it free but you tell me did free mean something to you at that yeah there's a there's a couple of things i mean it was it was a it was a kind of a I wasn't being, uh, there was no like malice in it or aggression or anything in saying that I'd left the stock aching water and producer guys. And I was free to go and make any kind of record I wanted because obviously they made so many hits, but they did it in a, a bit like Motown did to be fair. But I think Motown found some of the greatest artists that have ever walked the planet. Um, um, but they, they did have a set of rules a bit like Motown seemed to have, you know what I mean? So they worked with these set of keyboards they had this one drum machine that they always worked with the lin 9000 they worked in the same setup in the studio in terms of different reverbs and mics they had one main microphone in the whole of the building and everyone that's what their voice went through dude that's it so it was their sound it was their style it was their what have you and i remember at one point bringing some bits of percussion in because i was i i got you know tracks of my own on on the first album i even got a couple of singles on the second one and i wanted to sort of place a bit some some real life percussion on the things. And one of the engineers said, don't let Pete see that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just thinking, wow, man, this is crazy. And, I, and so anyway, so when I did decide, you know what, I think I'm done in terms of doing that anymore. I'd like to go and I don't know how long a career I'm going to have. I'm, I'm a pop artist at the end of the day. A lot of people get one or two albums and that's it. Um, and I just kind of thought, wouldn't it be great to go and record in different places? different people, different producers, different, you know, musicians that I absolutely love. I kind of feel that it was yes, free of being with those guys, even though I appreciate what they did and everything. But for me, it was about that it was free to choose to go to America, to go and record a little bit, to go wherever we wanted to go and get one of the greatest string arrangers, one of the greatest brass arrangers, one of my favorite drummers of all time, a guy called Vinnie Caliucci to come and play drums who played on cry for help. 
Andre Crouch, you know, if we're going to do a choir, why don't we just go to the creme de la creme? Like we go and see if the best choir in the world will sing on this song. And thankfully they did. And I couldn't have done that in the Stockhake and Watman building. That's not what they were about. And I respect that, but that's just not what they did. So it was, it may have come across to some people like I was, I was kind of like putting my fingers up and saying I'm free, but it was more, I'm just free to choose. I'm free to do anything. Because to be honest, also, I kind of felt this might be my last record that I ever get to make because pop people don't, I think to, to be honest, at the moment, people are having longer pop careers than they've ever had. It used to be, you got like your 15 minutes of fame and then you're out because something new's come along. And, and that is still true with some artists, but, um, there's a lot of pop people right now having really long careers, you know, so, so great, you know, well, you know, the getting back to the song that we were talking about before too, um, the, it, it's, there is a nostalgia. I, I have young kids. I have a 22, mm. well, not that young anymore, but 22 <laughs> and 19 year old and they love the 80 songs. No, right. they, they love never going to give you up. They, yeah. and it, this is not just because there's a nostalgia for it, but there's a, all, I know my kids frequently say, God, I wish we had that music. You know, I wish we grew right. up with that kind of music because it's, you know, lasting and they love, you know, we, we all love the electronic music mm -hmm. and things like that, but it's just some of the staying power, what you're talking about. Yeah. Th there's great songs, but anyhow. Yeah. But, yeah. It's, I mean, the whole thing with pop music is really, or, 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 you know, what we call rock and roll of the last 70 years or whatever. It's, yeah. I think when you go back to the fifties and the sixties, and, and let's say the Beatles and what have you, obviously they reinvented the world of modern music. But I think what's really difficult is that almost not anything you did, but you could take a little experiment and it became a big difference. Whereas because we've been through such a technological revolution in the last few decades, you can do anything with anything and, and you can do it on a laptop. That's the scary thing, you know, and you can go and even track a real band with a laptop and a bit of outboard gear. Do you know what I mean? And, and it's, so it's, it's taken the world of experimentation to something else. So it's really hard now to surprise anybody and everything sounds a bit like everything else because almost everything's been done. Maybe younger people are offended by what I'm saying there, but I'm saying, so therefore I think when you do go back to what originated some of those things like early Depeche mode or whatever it is, you know, with electronic sounds and stuff in the mainstream that as I know people did it before they did, but I'm saying in the absolute yeah. mainstream, yeah. it's, it's very hard to judge things is what I'm saying, because it, it's, you, you had to have been there to feel that, you, you know what I mean? Judging yeah. it from 30, 40 years ago, uh, you can't judge it against what's happening today because it's a different world completely. Yeah. Uh, it, it, but, to, yeah. I totally get it. Yeah. Um, Can, let me, Oh, yeah. sorry. I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I want to get into some of the lyrics too. And then uh, I don't want to take too much of your time. I sure. want to dig into some of the other questions about your plans sure. today and in the future. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so the lyric of somebody, please hear me cry for help. Mm. No need to feel ashamed. Release the pain. Cry for mm. help. Mm. Where did that come from? Well, I think my childhood was not a very happy childhood. My mom and dad divorced. I'm the youngest of four. There would have been five kids. They had a son who died of um, uh, meningitis before I was born. But there was definite. I didn't know this, obviously. As a four- and five-year-old kid, you don't understand anything. You just realize your parents are unbelievably unhappy with the world and with each other. And But nobody talks about it. I think people talk better now and the idea of seeing a therapist even in a family way and what have you would be way more approachable now but when you're from a small town in the north of england and grow up in the 60s 70s that not none of that is going to happen and so i think without being completely aware i was aware of it but i didn't know what it was there was definitely an underlying and overbearing i think at times sadness in our house for sure and i i I lived in my dad's house, actually, not in my mom's house. They're both, they're both dead now. And, um, I saw my mom a lot. I saw her every weekend and everything, but, and listen, people have been through, you know, broken homes. Of course, many, many, many people have done that. But I think the thing of them losing a child as well, it just kind of, but, but like I say, no one would ever talk about it. I think there was one picture of him in our house and I had to find that as well. And understandably because they were shattered by it. But I think 
I think all through my life, even though, you know, I sing never going to give you up and together forever and all those things, there is definitely, I instantly feel, um, uh, sadness and, and a longing for things to be fixed really easily. If someone's hurting, I'm not saying, you know, aren't I great? Cause I feel it. I think I'm just attuned to it. I think I had to be as a kid. I was the youngest. And my dad had a lot of stuff going on and so did my mom. And I think I just had to be, uh, ready to, to, to pick up, up on that. You know, my dad was a really, really angry man as well. And I think, you know, for lots of different reasons. And so I think it's got a bit heavy, hasn't it? But I just kind of think that, no, no, right no, no, that's life. That, that's the way life is. Yeah. But I think, I think that song as a, for instance, cry for help is definitely it's kind of me singing those words to me, but it's also singing them to anybody else who cares to listen to say, and, and the world has changed. People do cry out a lot more and do ask for help a lot more and do talk to friends even and to, you know what I mean? But when I grew up, nobody said a word to anybody about anything. Emotions were just something that were just like put to a side and you just don't talk about that. And so I think that's kind of what it's based in really and where it comes from. Um, do you get a sense, do you get a reaction from fans about that song? Um, that yeah. kind of it, like, thank you, Rick, because, uh, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know about necessarily thank you, but I think, I actually think I've felt that more on the, the kind of last couple of records I've made. I, I did, a, when I, when I was about to turn 50, I went in my little garage at home, which I've converted into a studio. And I just said, I'm always tinkering around with music, but I said, you know what? I'm actually going to make some songs that I'm going to play to someone. I don't know on what level and who and how and whether we'll release it with a record label, but I'm going to do something. And again, a lot of the lyrics on those songs are about things that really happened and obviously then turned into a song. So they're not, you know, nailed onto my experience, but they are things that are there. Um, and one of them is called Angels on My Side. And it's about, I have always felt somehow, and I'm not a typically religious person, but somebody somewhere is looking out for me. I don't know what's going on, but it is. Or they are and people have definitely related to that and they've definitely you know written me things and you know uh replied in in terms of social media things about that song for sure well it gets and, back I, to kind of what i started at the beginning too when i was describing you you're a giving philanthropist too and what you did in terms of those two um concerts that you gave late last year for the nih nhs uh, yeah or nhs excuse me yeah yeah I'm a, I'm one of those ugly Americans, you know, don't know what's going on outside the world. Right. We don't uh, know what's going on here either. <laughs> what, what is going on in the world? It's crazy times, crazy times. By the way, for everybody out there, we're also recording this the day after the Oscars, which was also a wild time, but yeah. I, I, I wish we had more time to talk about some of these things, but, mm. um, no, but, but seriously, like, uh, that is what you were just describing about yourself, the empathy shines through in the way that you've prioritized things in your life. And I want to, before we end this, I do want to get into what's next for you. You have a 35th anniversary reissued two CD yeah. deluxe edition of whenever you need somebody, which is the debut album that yeah, yeah, we're going to give you up. That's coming out early May and it features what I'm told 21 bonus tracks. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of bonus tracks. Yeah, but I think a lot, a lot of it. I mean, listen, I'm I always do these things down a bit, really. And the record company would all be going crazy, and you know, whatever. But um, <laughs> I think the truth of it. I think the truth of it is. I think it's. You mentioned a word before. You said nostalgia. Yeah. I think people have got back into buying records for one thing and want to own a record. I, I, I mean, I still buy records and don't even play them, so I don't know how that works. But I want to own the thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to be part of the, like I used to when I was a kid. It's like tangible. Just yeah, and 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 also because I think vinyl records, I think CDs are going to come back. To be honest, I actually do. They are. There's just something about the music in your hands as well, you know. Um, and I think, I think there's a. I don't want it to sound crass and horrible, but there's a market for those things, and I think record companies realize it. And I think it's keeping the thing alive a little bit. I think people want to kind of have that experience again and go, like I say, I'm convinced people who might buy that album don't even own a record player anymore. Oh, yeah. But it's it's like having a piece of wall art. You know what I mean? When we used to go through and go, who did what and how did they do it? And what, you know, 
It's funny you say that because my daughter's room right upstairs, the entire room's three layers of vinyl all around every single wall. That's, that's what she, yeah, that's what she does. And, and there's a reason for it. And, um, in the, our, my theory in our increasingly digital age, they, there's still this need for physicality, you know, the tangible tactile sort of thing. And that's what going to shows too. We, we we had a built-in respect for the music because we had to save up, buy it, go out, find it, go to a store, bring it home and look after it to be able to play it. You literally had to look after a vinyl record. It was something you were precious about and the whole thing and your needle and the whole thing. And listen, that, that does sound like I'm an old timer almost to certain people, but there was something about that connection of owning it yeah. and cherishing it. And yeah. I'm not saying kids don't and younger people don't have that absolute connection to the music they listen to, because I think they do. I really think they do. But the physicality thing is gone. So they don't have the pride in the ownership. So now, They'd, they'd rather go to the gig, for instance. That's the ultimate thing. I think I was there. I saw that band when they, you know. Um, and also, I think why merchandise has become a really big thing for a lot of acts as well. Because people go home and go, well, what can I take home? Yeah. I've got my memories, but I, I want to take home. Oh, absolutely. You know? So, yeah. Totally agree. Okay, so I, I'm going to go really quickly through a couple of things. Uh, you're touring, and we talked about that a little bit. That would be fun. Yeah, um, yeah amazing. With New Kids on the Block, Salt and Pepper and sure. and vogue and that yeah, starts amazing. in may here in the united no, states well, uh you did something and i wish we could talk about it but you collaborated with the indie band blossoms to perform songs by the smiths <laughs> and from what i understand yeah. that went really really well which is very yeah, cool so, so you got to bring that over to the the states too we'll see. Uh, we'll you're see. probably going to build a whole franchise of pubs because you have your first but you, you have your brews um now i'm going to ask you just lightning round extra credit sure okay. yeah so you really quickly your favorite artist, your your favorite moment in your entire career, you know, one that's my, my career. Yeah, your oh, career. Uh, your favorite words. moment. It, it could be anything. It could be big. It could be small, but just something okay, that sticks well, in your mind. I have spoken about this before. I don't know whether it, it is the favorite because I think that could depend on what day it is and where you are. And I'm a bit jet lagged right now, but that's all good. Um, when I made that record in my garage when I turned 50, which is like six years ago now. Yeah. Um, through the whole week going up to finding out if you're going to have a number one album or not. There's all this, oh, yes, you are. No, you're not. Yes, you are. No, you're not. You're definitely going to have a No, you're not. No, you're not. So anyway, on the day that, that we would find out, you know, we'd get a text saying, no, it definitely is. You are going to have a number one album tomorrow. Uh, we were doing a little gig in a record store, like five miles down the road from where I live. It just happened to coincidence that it was there, right? It's a famous record store. And um, it was pouring down. And I mean, it was biblical pouring down. So we do this gig. We're kind of like somebody, you know, gets the text. They sort of say, you're going to have a number one album. I'm like, so I, because by the way, this is not me being whatever. It's just, I wrote, uh, I wrote all the songs. I played every instrument and I produced it. I made a record with these hands in my garage, if you know what I mean. So it really meant something to me. And lyrically, I sang what I wanted to sing. So, so I'm like, I can't believe this. My wife manages me at this point now. She's taken over the reins of doing that. So we're like, what is going on? It was just such a beautiful thing for us and a connection and everything. It all seemed to be like, this is just a fairy tale. This is just nuts. We're having a number one album in the UK. This is just mad. So we go home and it's pouring down with rain. Our kitchen's got like two inches of water all over the floor. And this is a fairly new kitchen. By the way. Yeah. So we're mopping up. We are mopping up in our kitchen with two friends with a fantastic bottle of Italian red wine, by the way, at the same time celebrating having a number one album at the age of 50 that I made in a garage. And to me, that was the, yeah, but that was the perfect sort of like life does that. It gives you a number one album and then makes you mop up your own kitchen. Do you know what I mean? On this very same day. Keeping you you a little humble, but what what an amazing day. Good for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. That's very cool. I love that memory. Um, If you didn't become an artist, what do you think you would have done? What do you think your professional life would have been? Uh, wow, man. Uh, oh, really, Putting you on the spot. Well, you never had yeah. to really think about it because you were 21 when it all happened. But yeah, yeah. If it didn't... Uh, well, my, my dad had a little garden center. Yeah. And we all worked there, to be honest. We all kind of worked at that place. And, and, um, and on the one hand, that was great because, you know, it was pocket money when we were kids and what have you. And then it became a real job if you wanted it sort of thing. It's only a small thing, you know, you never really made any real money. Um, 
So I guess I perhaps would have had some part in taking that over, but um, he kind of sold it as he got a bit older anyway. And, you know, um, yeah, I don't know, really. I, I really don't like gardening. I'll tell you. <laughs> when, you when you've worked in a garden centre as a teenager and as a kid at weekends yeah. and after school, I don't like it. And the irony being is our daughter is a garden designer. Ah, so how does that, how does that work? Do you remember? Oh, Skip, a, skips a generation and boom. yeah, a little a little kismet as part of all of that. Where well, you, you didn't become a gardener because the girlfriend of that trio producing team happened to be in that pub that night. Absolutely, and the entire world changed. Good for you. <laughs> Listen, Rick, really enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you, Peter. No, I enjoyed it as well. You're delightful. Look forward to seeing you when you come over here to the States. Well, you're in the States right now, I'm but when, States, when, yeah. when you kick things off For sure. in May and your upcoming album and everything. But thank you very much. Thank you. She's taken my time. Convince me she's fine. But when she leaves, I'm not so sure. It's always the same. That was music icon Rick Astley sharing his in-depth story behind his international smash Never Gonna Give You Up, which hit number one in 25 countries, and his very different solo song, Cry For Help. I'm your host, Peter Chotti. You can follow me on Twitter at pchotti. That's P, C like cat, S like Sam, A, T like Tom, H like Harry, Y, and at deepcutsmedia.com. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. Also, make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. And as always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song. Hey there, it's Kyle Meredith from Kyle Meredith With. After you check out the latest episode of my show, uh, be sure to check out some of our other great programs on the Consequence Podcast Network, including Standing BTS, a bi-weekly podcast covering all things BTS and ARMY, and The Opus, Consequence's original documentary podcast exploring legendary albums and their lasting legacies. So head to consequence.net to listen to these podcasts and many great others. 